Hey there, saints. Exodus chapter 25. Let's bow our hearts. Fathers, we, as is our norm, come before you with hearts of anticipation of once again you meeting and ministering, you pouring out your spirit, you instructing us. Bring us to those areas of, of foundational truths, Lord. We've been blessed. We're growing. We're maturing. We're being grounded, Lord, in truth. And on top of that, grounded in love. We become so aware of everything you've done. And it's transforming, Lord, our, our, our thinking, our, our walks, just seeing you. In your glory, seeing you in, in your goodness, seeing you as that giver, Lord. And so tonight, as always, we're asking that once again you would give us ears. If, if you do not open our ears and open our hearts and open our understanding, they just become words. But if you do, Lord, it, it begins to transform us. It begins to transform not only our thinking, but our lives and how we do things. And, Father, it isn't learning to come to this area of perfection, but it, it's, Father, growing and, and always realizing that if there is going to be any growth, it's going to be you, your word, your spirit that does that work in us. We're so thankful that without you, we can do nothing, but with you, all things are possible. So instruct us, teach us, reveal your heart, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter 25. As we come to this portion, we're now about to jump into what is known as the tabernacle. I shared this at the end of the study um, two weeks ago, where there are two main places that the children of Israel would come to worship. First here is the tabernacle. And the second is eventually they would take the tabernacle and they would build a temple. You have the tabernacle and the temple. Those are the two. And they're unique in a lot of differences, but at the same time, they're very similar in a lot of other ways. And the reason being, we shared this you know, a couple weeks ago, that each one of those buildings will come to represent one of the ministries of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle in his humility and his very humble beginnings is going to represent Jesus in his first coming. The temple itself and its glory and its awesomeness is going to reveal Jesus Christ in his second coming. But where we are is we're looking at simply the tabernacle. There are going to be certain points where we'll reference the temple just so you can kind of see certain differences but for the most part, we're just going to focus on what the Word is declaring and use that as that foundation that we're looking at. So let's begin by reading here the first eight verses of Exodus chapter 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. 
blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood. Oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And then in verse 8 he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. To be honest, if you were anticipating getting further than this, as we've been looking at biblical foundations, there is so much here to try to grasp as far as the biblical foundations of the offering. And this is, of course, the offering that is going to be for the tabernacle. And I want you to understand there's going to be a couple things that we're going to look at that we'll seek to develop and one thing that we see here is in verse 2 that the God says, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. I love this first principle because it moves the offering from uh, a duty to a desire. It's, it's this thing that, that they're going to want to do. They're going to have a heart to do it. And he says, I only want you to bring it for me for everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. If there's this overflow response to who I am and what I've done, if that becomes it, that's what I want. I don't want anything out of compulsion. The other thing that we're going to see is this, is... In verse 8, he said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. It's going to be interesting that with this sanctuary, what we're going to see is that they are going to receive benefits from this offering. In other words, you can't ever outgive God. You're thinking, I'm going to give to God, and this is going to be so amazing, and, and just, you know, God, of course, is going to pat me on the back for this. And, but God says, they're going to make me a sanctuary, and I'm going to dwell with them. So we begin to see that this wonderful thing of how much you're going to benefit from this offering that you freely give with the abundance of your heart. But I want you to note a third thing that is very important. That the benefit that they are going to receive from this offering, as we see in verse 8, he says, I may, that I may dwell among them. What they are going to do is this, that they are going to give of the material and they are going to reap of the spiritual. They're going to give something that's temporal and they're going to be receiving something that's eternal. And we're going to see that balance between those things where how does that work with the offering? And when we receive the spiritual and we give of the material, we receive of the eternal and we give of the temporal. And so these are the foundations we're going to be looking at here with the offering. So beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 25, then the Lord <laughs> spoke to Moses saying, once again, Moses isn't coming up with this. This is God. And God very clearly makes this distinction 
And, and what the Lord does is this, and I want you to see this. He first says, speak to the children of Israel. He doesn't say, write this as a law. It's not a law. He just says, speak to them. If it was a law, everybody would have to do it. He'd just speak to them. And man, if this is an overflow of your heart, hey, I want to give you an outlet. But if it isn't, hey, don't worry, this isn't for you. But I want you to speak to the children of Israel. And it says this, that they bring me an offering. It's absolutely amazing that what we see here is that God says, I want you to bring something to me. And amazingly, he's not specific in what it is. So I want you to understand the first thing that begins to happen with an offering. God just says, am I worth it? Now, here's the catch. Most people, when they look at something to say, is it worth it? They have to look and say, what is it that I'm getting for what I'm giving? Isn't that always the key? I want to make sure that if I'm going to pay this much for a car, that it's going to last. It's going to be a good car. It's going to be this. If I pay this much for a house, it has all these amenities. If I pay this much for a service, I'm going to get quality service. And we're always wanting to make sure first and foremost is, okay, I'm, I'm going to give something, but I want to make sure that what I give, that I'm going to receive something that's beneficial of equal amount. And God says, am I just worth it? And he leaves a blank. This is so amazing the way that God begins to prep our hearts for the foundation of any offering. The first thing is this. Not what do I have to give? Can I afford it? Should it be this? Should it be that? Just God says, I'm going to ask you for an offering. Am I worth it? And that's what you have to ask yourself. If God just says, bring me an offering, do you have to wait and say, okay, Lord, before I do this, I got to know what it is, what you're going to give to me, what is the benefit, what is the, the, the cost benefit ratio here? And it's not that. God just simply says, bring me an offering. And if you're going to do it, it has to be from your heart. It has to be willingly. And so I find it amazing that the first part of the foundation of the offering is this. Don't ask God what it is. Don't ask God, you know, what do I have to do? Just if he says, bring me, give me, you just say, yes, Lord. <laughs> I don't care what it is. If, if he asks what says, I'm going to want this from you. I'm going to require this from you. It's, Lord, whatever you need. And I think that's what's amazing when that becomes your heart. Now, keep in mind that sometimes God is going to ask for different types of offerings. He's going to ask for your time. And you say, but, but I don't have that time. He says, oh, oh, I think you might. If I ask for it, am I worth it? Am I, am I worth it more? Are you going to cut other things back to give me that time? <laughs> And when you do give him that time, keep in mind that you're going to say, okay, Lord, okay, you're worth it for me to get up a little bit early so I can have some devotion, so I can have some time with you. You're, you're, you're worth it. You're worth it. That's what you're asking me to do. But then as soon as you say, okay, well, I've, I've gone up and I've given you this additional time, then you realize, oh my goodness, Lord, you've me so much more than just me giving you this additional time. I have been blessed in abundance. I've now given up this temporal thing called time and you've given me this eternal truth that this relationship with you is growing deeper and deeper. 
And so I want you to understand that aspect, the beginning of the heart, the beginning of the foundation when it comes to the offering. God just simply says, am I worth it? And I don't care what he's asking for. I don't care what he's going to give in return. If you simply say, God, you desire, are you worth it? You can put whatever you want in any of those two blanks, Lord, and you're worth it. You're, you're, you're absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm willingly with my heart wanting to give it. And it's, it's, it's a crazy thing when you look to this because God doesn't start with, okay, I'm going to need a little bit of this and a little bit of this and then kind of work your way up. And, and God just doesn't do that. He says, offer to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want an offering. And so he says to Moses, he said, speak to the children of Israel. That they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. The next thing to understand is this. That everything that is given unto the Lord is the Lord's. It just is. And so when you give unto the Lord to a ministry then understand you're giving to the Lord. You're not necessarily giving to that ministry. In a sense, you are, but, but you're recognizing this ministry has been giving the, the spiritual truths out there. So for me to bring and give a material benefit to that ministry is no large thing. It's a small thing. And so understand what God is saying, that and he says, you have to bring me an offering. So it, 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 you have to understand that what I'm giving, I'm giving unto the Lord. So when you see that, when you recognize this, God is going to do a work or God is going to do a work. And whether it's in this tabernacle or in a ministry or, or whatever it is that God is, is showing you, that he's saying, I want you to give part of you to this then understand that to question, is it only this or can I do this or what's that cost-benefit ratio? When he's asking, you just willingly do this. And then you have to do a hard check because he says, he who gives willingly with his heart. And this is huge. This is huge. It has to be this natural response that you desire to give this offering. If it's out of compulsion, if it's something where you feel it's a duty, and if, you know, if, you know, Grisha over here is going to do it, well, then I better do it or I'm going to just look bad. If, if it's not this desire, this overflowing desire, then what, what God says is this, then, then just hold on to it. Just hold on to it. But ask this question, why isn't it an overflowing desire? When you realize that everything that God has given, everything that God is going to do, and you realize the spiritual benefit that was given first, a response is gratitude. And as we note this, I want you to see here that, that God initially makes these initial keys. One, you have to understand, don't ask for details. Is God worth anything? Yes. Is he worth it in increments? No, he's worth everything. And, and it's, it's something that I willingly want to offer with my whole heart. But I recognize that 
I'm doing this and I'm giving this to God. That, that there are times where um, we are seeking to minister and to glorify God and we look for those venues that God has glorified and those are those areas where we say, God, this is what you want. And sometimes God is going to change things up. He says, well, this is for me and I'm going to actually cause you to go down this path. Like, I wasn't expecting that turn, but okay, if this is what you're calling me to do, I want to surrender willingly to you. A couple of things when it comes to offerings. We understand the first offering was there with Cain and Abel. And we note that the, the difference being is that, that, you know, Abel's was accepted, Cain's was rejected. It was only by faith, only by faith, nothing else. One was very humble, one was look at what I'm doing. And, and I think it's, it's important to realize that that's the foundation of all offerings. It's faith, it, it's God, you're going to do the work. The next time that an offering was mentioned in the scripture actually brings a little bit more clarity than that first foundational truth that it is by faith and by faith alone. That's found in, in Genesis chapter 14. If you're familiar with this passage, this is where Abraham goes and he, after his nephew Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and these kings were taken by you know, five kings were taken by four kings. Abram gets his, his men together and they go and they defeat those kings and they bring everything back. Now, as they're coming back, it begins this in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. It opens up this. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. So we begin to see here that Melchizedek meets with Abraham. As he meets with Abram, understand what happens, that it is not Abram that initiates this meeting, it's Melchizedek that initiates the meeting. A king and a priest has a heart to meet with Abram. Now, Abram's had this great victory, and we understand what, what went on with Abram, but Melchizedek, what he does is when he meets with Abram, he brings out two elements. He brings out bread and wine. If you've ever taken communion, you know these are two elements. And Jesus says, you do these in remembrance of me. It's this type where he now gives this bread and the wine. He's the priest of the Most High God. And he blesses Abram. Now, Hebrews tells us without contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And we understand how this Melchizedek was greater than Abram. He was a type of Christ. But he comes and he blesses Abram. And after he blesses Abram, he then blesses um, be Abram of God Most High, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. So he now praises God after he blesses Abram. 
And then he says in verse 20, blessed be God most high. He blesses and honors God. And then he says this, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. He gives Abram a very clear distinction. Your victory wasn't yours. Your victory was God's and God's alone. He is the one who's delivered your enemies into your hand. So the battle was the Lord. And so when the priest comes and lets Abram know everything that God had done for Abram. Notice what happened here. He says, oh, you don't understand this glorious God whom you serve, the possessor of heaven, whom you serve, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's delivered your enemy into your hand. And so Abram's response was not, is there a law that I can check out? Is there a law that I can do? Understand his natural response at the end of verse 20. And he, Abram, gave him Melchizedek a tithe of all. He just said, boy, <laughs> you know what? With all that I've received, just I'm going to just make sure that, that you receive 10%. I want to give this offering as this abundance. So I, I love the, the point that here... As Abram becomes aware of the enormity of God's goodness upon his life. Now he's known it, but he now becomes intrinsically aware that this battle and everything that he has, has only been God. God was the one who delivered. God was the one who brought about this victory. And so we see here that within this now, Abram gives to Melchizedek this tithe. And I think what happens is that this offering that Abram gives is simply a natural response. It's the willingness of the heart when you realize everything that God has done. And it becomes this overflow of just one way that I can respond. How can I respond to what it is that you've done? And so we see here that as soon as he does this, Melchizedek needs to meet with Abraham. He initiates this meeting. He refreshes Abraham with this bread and the wine. He blesses Abraham. And Abraham's response is not by a law, but he simply responds by an overflow of the heart. And, 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 and what does he have? Well, at this point, he has all that spoils and whatever's in my hand, whatever. Just, just, he doesn't, Melchizedek doesn't ask. He doesn't say, this is what I'm going to require. Abram just gives. And I want you to understand, no details. He just gives him a tithe of all. And, and so we see here that of, of everything that he does, once again, there's no detail. There's no specifics. He simply just offers over an un over the, this response of his heart, this natural desire. And then it says this in verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Now, you think about it. The king of Sodom lost everything to these kings. Nothing was his. It was all taken away. Now the kings lost everything to Abram. It's now all Abram's. And the king of Sodom says, you know what? You can have the goods. Now, that just turns Abram, and, and I want you to see what his response is. Abram said to the king of Sodom, notice what he says. 
I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Do you understand what he's saying? I worship God. I don't need anything else. Nothing is important. I have come to this place where I've raised my hand. I've exalted him. And as, as I'm exalting him, as I'm raising my hands, what happens is this. When you raise your hands to the Lord, it's one of those things where you don't put anything in your hands. You keep them empty. You're just raising your hands. And, and what you're saying is, God, I have nothing. And honestly, I have nothing to offer you. And anything that you put in my hands, anything that you put in my life, I've simply become a steward of that. And I'm responding to a giver. I'm responding to the one who's given everything to me. And I think it's important when we see here that when you look to the countless acts of God, what happens is this. There's certain responses that come into your heart that you just want to do. Now, here's the problem. So often, we look to these responses of God and we have that kick in the head called a sin nature and we're not really aware that what God is doing and how much God has done. See, when, when you look to what Melchizedek said to Abram, he said, God did it all. So if you realize I've done nothing, then what? It's all God's. I, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. So when you recognize that, God does it all. Every day when you're walking, every day when you're living, every day when you're breathing, every day when you're serving, no matter what it is, realize God has done it all. God is doing it all. Without God, you can do nothing. But with him, all things are possible. And when you become aware of everything that he's done, then you want to say, it's all yours. My hands are empty. My life is yours. You do what you want with this life. You do what you want with everything that you've made me a steward of. And I want to make sure that you're honored because it's all yours anyways. And I think what happens is this, that because of the sin nature, we're blinded by that. We don't see the things of God. Like it says in Romans, that, that you know, the things of God that should be a natural thing in our heart and our life that we've simply just quashed it. We, we, the enemy's blinded us and we haven't become aware of everything that's God. And so rather than giving him glory, we say, no, it's, it's this that I need to praise and this that I need to praise or my own abilities that I need to praise without realizing that it's always and has always been God's. And so... What, what Abram does is this to, to Sodom, who says, oh, I'm going to give you something. He said, you can't give me anything. It's all God's. And if I have anything, it is God's. And so he now says this, verse 22 and verse 23 again. But, Abraham, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me and our Eshcol Mamre, let them take their portion. So again, we looked at this when we went through this portion that what Abram does is he surrenders his heart, his life, his ministry completely to the Lord. 
But he doesn't require that same commitment to those who went with him. He says, I'm not going to take anything, but these, they've earned it. And so they'll get their reward. I don't need it, but I won't put my righteousness or I won't put my calling upon them as a form of religion, making them do what I do. I'm not taking anything, but these guys, let them take their portion. They can't. They don't have to follow what I'm doing. They have their own walks. They can do what they want to do. But I think what happens is this. Abram comes and he simply gives. There's this offering to Melchizedek. The one who came and met with him. The one who came and refreshed him. The one who came and blessed him. And he pointed him to, you know, basically the Lord, the God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And, and Abram begins to just completely, absolutely worship and abandon just, this is yours. I don't need it. And, and amazing what happens is this. Eventually, for the Levites, and we'll get into this when we go a little bit further, that the Levites will be receiving a tithe from the nation of Israel, but it will be required by God. It will be a law. The tithe for the nation of Israel to the temple eventually becomes a law, but what happens is this is Abram does it before it becomes a law. And in the New Testament, he says, I want you to do it and do it, not do it as a law, but do it as a natural response. What happens is this. I do believe that every single law that God has said, something that we should do, something that we shouldn't do, should be in our hearts a very natural response of being aware of something that God did. When you become aware of, oh God, I now see you, this is what you do then you do something and amazingly God says, this is my heart, this is the law. Everything that's in the law had to be written down because of the sin nature. We were clouded, we were gray in our minds and we couldn't see the truth. So God says, well, because you don't do this naturally because of your sin nature, I'm gonna put it in as a law so that when you walk these things, you should see this should be a natural response of my heart. And that's what offering should be. It should be a natural response of your heart. There's a passage, you guys know it well, we've quoted it numerous times, and I want to quote it one more time here. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. It's called the Shema, it's Hero Israel. And I want to read to you verse 4 and 5 so that you're familiar with it. But it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Amazingly, and this is unique, and I find this so fascinating. One of the, the Bibles that I have access to is called the Complete Jewish Bible. I've read this passage in that Bible and it, it makes this statement. He says, you are to love Adonai, your God, with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. I found that interesting. The, the, the love is just, I'm a steward. <laughs> I own nothing. It's always been yours. It will always be yours. 
And so the Lord here, when he's talking to the nation Israel, he told Moses, tell them. I said, I want everyone to give it willingly with his heart. Now there's a passage, and you're, you're probably aware of it, but I want to remind you of it again. It's found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 12, we're going to be seeing that what Jesus does is this. I'm going to start reading in verse 41. Because what Jesus did was this. Jesus sat opposite the treasury in Mark 12, 41. And it said this. He saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Now I want you to know it doesn't say he saw what the people put in. The what isn't the issue here. The how is the issue here. And so he saw how people put money into the treasury. Verse 42 says, Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. So keep in mind that two mites is approximately a quarter of a penny. That's all it is. A quarter of a penny. But I found this interesting. I had read this article on just what if that woman had put in two mites into a bank. Two mites into the bank. A quarter of a penny into a bank. 4% interest. At today's date, she would have $4.8 billion trillion. Talking about compound interest. So you realize that when you give something little, God can do amazing things with it. He's not limited by how little it is. What he is interested in is the heart. What is going on? And so here he points out that what he's wanting to do is to see how the people put in the money. And this, this widow, others had put in a lot. And what the Lord says is this in verse 44. For they, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood. And Jesus is sharing this truth. Not that we need to give our whole livelihood. That's not what he's trying to teach here. He's trying to say is, is that... How do you give? Do, do you say, well, okay, now I have an abundance, so I can afford this much. I can give only this much. Or, or to say, wow, if I'm going to give a little bit more, okay, God, now you've got to step up and do this. Or are you simply saying, open hands? I don't have to look to what it is. What's, what the Lord puts upon my heart, he's worth everything that I have. And he's going to direct those things. But when we have to come and reason through and compound and do all those things to realize, oh my goodness, my heart isn't right in this. Now, now you, can, you can give in that way, and if that's what your heart wants to do, you can do that. But I think that you're missing out on the point of the foundation. I'm not here trying to tell you give more to ministries. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying, trying to say is look at your heart and say, 
are there limits that you're looking to to say, well, I'll do this for this and this for this and I have to limit what I'm doing and, and I make sure that it's always portional. I can give a portion. I can do a portion. And, and, and rather than radically saying, God, what's your heart today? What's your heart? And so I'm not worried about those things. If he puts on a portion, then praise God. But if he puts on anything else, then, then praise God. So the, the question is, is that's what we look first and foremost, is God says, give me an offering. I'm not going to tell you what, I'm not going to tell you how much. I'm just and, and can you answer willingly with all my heart? Can you answer that? Or, or do, does he have to give you details? Does he have to give you things? And so this is the first foundation that we're looking at when it comes to this area of giving offerings. There's a passage in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. As I say it already, your mind is jumping. I know who this is. This is Cornelius. But I want you to understand a little bit of what Cornelius does in his offerings. It opens up in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. A devout man, one who feared God with all his household. And then it says this, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. <laughs> I want you to understand what this guy does. He fears God. Now, he's a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile, and, but he's a man who fears God. And what he does is this. He gives an offering to the people. He just gives an offering. Now, the interesting is this. Who are the people? Does he give an offering to the Jews? Does he give an offering to all people? It doesn't say so understand that what we'll do is this. We won't put down, he's going to give it just to the Jews, but we'll put all people and we will include Jews into the all people. So we'll just do it that way. And so it simply says he gives alms generously to the people and he prays always. Now verse 3 says this, about the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in the vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius... And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, and I want you to note this, that in verse 2 it says, he gave alms and he prayed. Now what we see is when this angel speaks to him in this vision, in verse 4 he says, your prayers and alms have come up for memorial before God. Now keep in mind, he fears God. He's, he's, he's reverent. But the two things that are mentioned here is this prayer that he gives himself over willingly to commune with God and then this overflow of his heart, this giving, this giving, this giving, this generous giving of alms to the people. And those two things, God says, I've seen it. I've recognized it. And so he now says this in verse 5, send men to Joppa, send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. So we understand that Peter, with the sheet and everything else, eventually he does come. And then it makes this statement in verse 30. 
So Cornelius, when Peter comes and says that I know that I should not call any man common. Verse 30, Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Therefore, said, send to Joppa, call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, Simon and Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Now, understand, he's telling Peter, God is going to use you as a vessel, but I want to hear the things of God. <laughs> and I love this of his heart. And then Peter opened his mouth, verse 34, and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Now understand, Cornelius is not given these alms because of a law. He's not given these alms because of a requirement. Cornelius is given these alms simply out of an abundance of his heart. It's a response to, to as he's experiencing God and understanding God, he just becomes a giver. He becomes a man of prayer a man of fasting, seeking God, but he becomes a giver. But understand, it isn't a requirement. It's simply a natural response that he does. And now in verse 44, we begin to see that, that while Peter was still speaking, telling him about the Lord, telling him about Jesus Christ, telling him about whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins, but while Peter was speaking these words, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished and many came, as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. Two things of note now. One is Cornelius is giving alms generously, generously, generously. It's what he does. It's what he's been doing. He's noted for that. I don't think he's done it once. This is a pattern of his life. It's a response. And what he gets instead is he gives out material. As he gives out temporal, he receives the eternal. <coughs> he receives the spiritual. And, and, Think about this. If you were to ask Cornelius, just if we had an opportunity to get to him and say, if you tallied up everything that you ever gave to the people and then you put a value on you receiving the Holy Spirit and eternal life, which outweighs? And you have to understand that the, 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 the spiritual so much outweighs the material. Because it's eternal, because it, it's, it's, it's there. And I think what's so important is realize that when God noticed Cornelius' heart, he noticed his reverence, he noticed his prayer, but he noticed the alms. And within that, God says, Cornelius, I'm going to bless you. He sends an angel. He doesn't say, Peter, go to Cornelius. He just sends an angel. Oh, oh you're, you're going to go and you're going to get Peter. And he's going to come, but, but there, there's, there's a work that you're doing just as in 
I want you to note this now. There's going to be a work that the children of Israel is going to be doing as they're constructing the tabernacle. There's this dual thing. God does his thing. He uses me. But it's still God who uses me. I can't take credit. And when we look to this, I think it's so important to realize here that, that, that what becomes the greatest thing that you put a focal point on. Is it the material or is it the spiritual? Jump a little further, New Testament, to the book of Romans chapter 15. I want to again bring a balance to what it is that we're trying to share here because what Paul says to the church of Rome here in the book of Romans chapter 15 beginning in verse 25. Paul makes the statement to the church in Rome. Romans 15 verse 25, I'm going to read down to verse 28. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to the, the capital of Israel. I'm going to where um, the temple is. I'm going to Jerusalem. And then he says this. I'm going to minister to the saints. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to serve them. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to meet with them and I'm going to bless them. And then he gives this reason how and what and why. Verse 26, he said, It pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their, that is the Jews' spiritual things, in other words, the Old Testament, the words of God, the, the ability to know that there is the Father in heaven, to know there is Yahweh, Jehovah. He says, if they have become partakers of their, the Jews' spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. So I want you to understand that what Paul is saying here to the church in Rome, he says, you have to understand that those in Macedonia and Achaia, they made a contribution to the children of Israel. They made a contribution to the poor who were there in Jerusalem. And they're making this contribution to the, 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 the poor in the church. They're making a contribution to the poor that were there in Jerusalem of the Jews. But it said this, it pleased those. And I think it's important to make a note here that it says in verse 26, for it pleased those. And then in verse 27 it says, it pleased them indeed. Do you understand? It was an overflow of their heart to say, okay, I realize what has happened. Because in verse 27, when it says it pleased them indeed, it says they're their debtors. Now, in what way were the church a debtor to Israel? Well, keep in mind that Israel has kept the word of God pure. They kept the word of God clean. And so you can look at our Isaiah, and it's the same Isaiah that Isaiah wrote. You understand how, how we become debtors because they allowed the spiritual, eternal truth to now fall into our hands. And this is what was happening to 
to the Jews because everything in the Old Testament did one thing. And we're going to see this when it comes to the tabernacle. It points to Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came on the scene, no one could say and scratch your yarmulke out, do you really think this is the Christ? You had to know that he was because he, he fulfilled over 230 prophecies concerning himself in his first coming. He's going to re, you know, fulfill another 200 in his second coming, but he's re, fulfilled all those concerning himself. And what the Old Testament is, it reveals God, it reveals man's heart, it reveals salvation, but it reveals who would be the salvation. God himself would become the Messiah. God himself would become the lamb. And this lamb would take away the sins of the world. So they recognized these of Macedonia and Achaia that they were debtors. Because if the Gentiles now received spiritual things from those of Jerusalem, from the Jews, then they said you would want to give to them material things. In other words, you give something inferior for something that was greater. You have to realize the blessing of the spiritual and then realize, oh my goodness, what I have gained spiritually, it is, it is this thing to honor them with the material. And so this is here what Paul is beginning to speak. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, one verse and only one verse I want to give you it's called First uh, Corinthians chapter nine verse eleven, but it, it, it's about sowing the spiritual. It declares this: First Corinthians chapter nine verse eleven. If we have sown spiritual things for you, if we've given to you the spiritual, if we've given to you the eternal, if this is the ministry that you have received, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great? Thing if we reap your material things. If we've given you the higher, the, the better, the thing that weighs on the scale, is it such a bad thing to receive back from you the material, the lesser, that which is temporal? And so he's weighing this out. And so as we, we look to this, he just really is, is making this declaration that a workman is worthy of his hire. We're giving you something of greater value than what the material is, but you're helping support us with the material so we can continue to minister the spiritual. And this is really one of the key. You receive the spiritual, you receive the eternal. Is it a great thing if you give an offering of the material, of the temporal, of the lesser? And so when it comes to that, here comes the question. When you look at the benefit that you receive of the spiritual, and then you ask that question, is it worth any of the material? What is it worth of, of what does God want from me as an offering, as an overflow to say, God, you blessed me because of the spiritual. You blessed me because of this eternal you bless me through this word in your spirit. A couple of passages to help you, guide you on this, this area to bring a conclusion in a sense to what is the, the initial part of this foundation is this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, it simply begins this. 
2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and verse 7 says this. But this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what he says is this. When you give, understand that you can never outgive God. Now, when he talks about this whole thing of, of sowing and reaping, if you were a farmer, you would understand that if you plant one acre of crop, you're going to get one acre's worth of return. But if you plant 10 acres worth of crop, you're going to get 10 acres worth of return. If you plant 100 acres of crop, you're going to get 100. So what you're planting, everything that you plant, there's going to be this, this increase. But what you're putting in, there's going to be this greater amount coming out. So one who puts in one portion and one who puts in a greater portion, the one who plants, he who sows sparingly, you only put in a little bit, reaps sparingly, he who sows bountifully, reaps bountifully, but when you do, whatever it is that you sow, if you're okay with a little bit or a little bit more, whatever it is, he says, this is what I want you to do. You need to do it, give as you purpose in his heart. Same thing that we looked at back in our text in the Exodus, as you purpose in your heart, not grudgingly of a necessity, because God loves it when you're a cheerful giver. The, the Greek makes it into a hilarious giver. Now, one other passage I want to read to you back up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to give to you the first eight verses as it comes into here so that you really begin to understand what is the foundation that God wants me to grow, who wants me to understand when it comes to this area of holding up my hands and offering to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, Moreover, brother, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. He says that God has blessed these churches with a great grace. And he says this, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, and yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of, those, of the ministering of the saints. In other words, that we would receive this gift and the fellowshipping, the hospitality, and then it says this in verse 5, And not only as we had hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, like Cornelius, and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, he would also complete this grace to you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligent in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So what's happening is that these people here that we understand of Macedonia and Achaia, as we learn in, in, in Romans, that they, out of their deep poverty, said, we want to give in liberality. We're not looking at numbers. We're not looking at amounts. We're not looking. We're just looking at, 
We receive so much spiritually. How can we give back to them? And then what's interesting is this, that over and over, Paul calls it the grace. And I, I find it incredible that he would do this, that where he says in verse 6, we urge Titus that just as he had begun, he would complete this grace in you as well. This grace, this overabounding, overflowing of receiving what you do not deserve and you still get it anyways. And so that you abound in everything. And in verse 7, he says, see that you abound in this grace also. But notice what he says now in verse 8. And that's what makes you've got to get down to verse 8. He says, I do not speak by commandment. It's not a have to. If, if, you, if it's not in your heart, then don't. And I love this. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love and by the diligence of others. You've seen how their love was expressed. How is your love going to be expressed? You've seen how their gratitude was expressed. How is your gratitude going to be expressed? And this is here what we're seeing now how the gratitude and the love of the nation of Israel would be expressed. God, in our text, says this. Tell the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. <laughs> no strings attached, just that. But if you're going to do it, from everyone who gives it, let it be willingly, and with his heart you shall take my offering. Now I'm going to go through this next part a little quickly because we're going to dive into it more and more as we get into each one of these will be repeated through the, the tabernacle itself. But now God makes a statement. This is the offering which you shall take from them. Now I want you to understand that God doesn't start small and work his way up. He just doesn't. He said this is the offering. Gold. Gold. The thing that is most valuable to mankind, the offering is going to be gold, silver, bronze. So we talk about these metals that are there. Now gold itself, if you know heaven streets of gold, gold is going to be the metal of deity. When you look to gold as a type, it's the metal of deity. When it says silver, silver as a type is the metal of redemption. So you have deity, redemption, and then bronze, of course, is the metal of judgment. So the, 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 the laver, the altar, those are all made of bronze. That's where the sacrifices are washed. The blood is washed off. The sacrifices are made. That's where sin is judged. And then silver itself, when you look to all the things that are silver, it's going to be, this is redemption. This is redemption. If you understand that the sockets will be silver, the, the foundation, foundation is always what? Redemption, redemption, redemption. This is what God does. And of course, the, the, the deity, the gold that is there. And then he says this. After he says, take from them the gold, silver, and bronze, he says, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood. What does all that mean? Well, keep in mind that when you look at the color blue, if you've taken a look at the sky, you know, the sky is what? The sky is normally, well, I mean, ours are gray usually, but, but when the sky is blue, it's beautiful. But when you see the blue skies, you think of heaven. You see the beauty of it. So blue as a type is going to be heaven. 
Purple as a type is going to be royalty. And as you see, scarlet thread. And of course, scarlet is, of course, that blood redemption. Scarlet is a color of redemption. So you're going to have these woven in. You have blue, purple, scarlet thread. And so you see this, 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 the, you know, the color of heaven, the color of royalty, the color of redemption. And of course, think of Jesus right now. Heaven, royalty, redemption. This is the first things that he points out. Um, and then he goes in this. He says, and then fine linen and goat's hair. Now, fine linen is going to be white. So when you look to something that's white, you're going to see perfection, purity, holiness. That's what you're looking at. And then you see directly after that goat's hair. And of course, the goat is going to be the atonement for sin. So when you think about what he's doing, just look at the types. He says, deity, redemption, judgment, heaven, royalty, redemption, um, perfection, purity, holiness. And then he says this, with that whole thing of the, um, the goat's hair, atonement for sin. And then he says, ram skins dyed red, sacrifice. You have to have the sacrifice, a reminder of the sacrifice over and over again. And then the badger skins, badger skins are going to be a type of protection. There's a lot of people that are confused on what the badger skins are. There's all kinds of different things. We'll look at that down the road. But just understand that's the outer coat is for protect, protection. And then acacia wood. Whenever you see acacia wood, acacia wood is going to be a type of humanity. Why is that important? Well, when we start getting into the parts, you're going to see that when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant, they're going to make it of what? Of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Humanity overlaid with deity. And so you, you see these types as they come through. Now, acacia wood, as it's a type of humanity, understand it's one of the hardest woods that's there. It's more harder than gold. And the amazing thing about um, acacia wood is bugs don't like it for the most part, which is amazing. So it has this... It's not a short-lived kind of type of humanity. It is humanity. Long-lived. Why? Well, Jesus still has scars. He's still there in heaven, still showing the scars. And so um, he literally set aside his deity to take on humanity forever, always now in this form. And then it says oil for the light. And of course, the, the oil for the light, oil is, is wisdom. It's, you know, the, um, the Holy Spirit. And he says, and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. And so we're now looking at here the, the fragrances of the power of prayer. These spices are these um, uh, intercessions, if you will. Prayers are rising to God. And of course, with that, the sweet incense, that intercession. Then he says, the stones, onyx stones, verse 7. The stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And now we're looking at this priestly perfection. Now, when we look at this priestly perfection, understand we're not looking at the priestly perfection of the priests because if they had been perfect, there'd be no need to be looking at the second. We've already looked at the Melchizedekian priesthood, which pre-stated the Levitical priesthood. And so the Levitical priesthood showed its inferiority. Why? Because... They were in Abraham in his loins and they gave an offering to Melchizedek already showing what? That they were inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is eternal. It has no beginning, no end. So understand that, that when we're looking at here, this whole area of 
this, this breastplate and everything that he's going to do, it talks about priestly perfection, but it's the priestly perfection pointing to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Absolutely incredible that what God says is, I want you to make this place and that what you're going to do is you're going to meet with me. You are going to have access to the spiritual. You are going to have access to the eternal. You're going to have access to me. And, and you, you think about this, that all of a sudden he says, and I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose to dwell in that holy of holies. I'm going to choose to dwell above this, this Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And so I want you to understand that God says, with everything that you're going to do, you're going to make me a sanctuary. And then think about this. They're going to give this incredible cost of what it is to make this tabernacle that's just going to be drugged through the wilderness, but where God is going to meet with them, and they're going to put in gold and silver and bronze and all of these precious garments, all of this precious oil, all of these spices, all of these precious stones for the ephod and the breastplate. And, and ask them this question. We're paying all this cost, we get the glory of God. Is it worth it? You know what I'm saying? There's not a comparison because you have the spiritual over the material, the eternal over the temporal. Understand that everything there was going to go. Everything, everything on earth is going to burn, but the material that's temporal has no comparison, even if it's value to the eternal of the spirit. And all this God does is says, let them make me a sanctuary. And then he says this, like, okay, you're going to give, you're going to give, you're going to be a sanctuary. But then he says this, that I may dwell among them. <laughs> and they're like, well, that's all worth it. Now we have the better deal. When we thought we were giving God something, now we understand that everything that we have, and understand that everything that they had, keep in mind, was given to them by Egypt, that God said, I'm going to put on their heart to give you all of this back pay for 470 years. And what are you going to do? You're going to give a portion to me. But only if you want to. And, and he says, oh my goodness. You know, just think about that. We just, months ago, we had nothing and we were slaves. Now we're out and we have all this abundance. God, yes. Yes. And you're going to say, you're going to meet with us? Well worth it. So... This is our foundation that we're looking at initially, just in this foundation of the offering. And I think it's so important for us to grasp it, to get a hold of it, to say, God, now we understand what's the biblical foundation of offering. Is it the abundance of my heart? Do I realize that what I'm getting is far greater in the spiritual realm than what I'm ever giving out in the material? And to realize the benefit of that. And so... Um, with that, it's a good thing to ponder through. It's a good thing to um, look at and to really bring your heart before the Lord on these things. So, Father, we are so grateful for your word, how you, Lord, in this passage that just seems like it's just a couple of verses with, with stuff, so make this beautiful foundation of what our heart should be, how we respond to your goodness and to realize that everything that we're responding is a picture of Jesus. Everything we do is something that he does. 
something that he's done that we can never outgive you, God. Oh, thank you for your son. Thank you for the grace and the forgiveness that we have. Thank you for this word that leads us to life. Thank you for opening our, our hearts and our minds to this truth. We do pray, Lord, that through your spirit you would transform our thinking in this and our actions upon it. So we give you our lives. We give you open hands. We raise our hands. We give you open hands, Lord, open lives. Do what you want. No strings attached. You're worth it. We confess this in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.